gunpowder. <laughs> yes, you should hold your child's hand on a busy street. <laughs> Thank you. Confirming my parenting. <laughs> okay, well, it's, it's too late for me. Welcome to Serious Epidemiology, a new podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am pleased to be co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Haley Bannock of the State University of New York at Buffalo. Welcome, Haley. Hi, welcome. And we're really excited to launch this new monthly podcast focused on epidemiologic methods. Serious Epi is going to be featuring interviews with leading epidemiologists who are experts on cutting edge and novel methods. Our conversations will focus on why these methods are so important, what problems they solve, and how they're currently being used in the field. The podcast is aimed at helping epidemiologists continue their learning in epidemiologic methods, and so it's targeted at advanced master's students, doctoral students, postdocs, and even faculty and practicing epidemiologists out in the world. And if we are being totally honest, uh, the reason we wanted to start this podcast is because it's a chance for us to uh, ask experts the questions we've still confused about despite our time already working in epi methods and teaching epi courses. So we are delighted to welcome our, our first guest on Sirius Epi, Dr. Daniel Westreich of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who has focused on causal inference and epidemiologic methods for implementation science and infectious diseases, particularly the intersection of infectious diseases and reproductive health. And he's also author of the new textbook, Epidemiology by Design, A Causal Approach to Health Sciences. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. Very glad to have you here. We we have decided we don't want to start off with the really heavy stuff right away, so we figured we would ask you a couple of, of softball questions to begin with that are designed to let our audience know a little bit more about you. So the first thing I want to know is, what is your favorite bias? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite bias is something I call asking the wrong question bias. Mm. <laughs> because while, you know, confounding is important and, and missing data is important and we wildly underestimate the importance of misclassification bias and measurement error generally, none of it matters if you've asked the wrong question. Well, um, the good news is this podcast is never going to suffer from the what's the wrong question bias. So we're, we're all good there. <laughs> We're only going to ask the right questions on this well, podcast. You're going to help us learn how to ask proper <laughs> questions. That's why you're here today. Exactly. I, I will do my best. So I'm curious to know what is one movie that you could watch and rewatch over and over again? Huh. Well, I think, I think it's not one movie. I think it's literally any movie made by Christopher Nolan. Mm. Mm. And you don't have a favorite among them? Hard to say. It's different different movies for different moments. Mm. But almost all of those movies are, are nearly infinitely rewatchable. So if anyone needs a birthday gift for Daniel, you'll know, you know. Do people sell DVDs anymore? You can buy Daniel a DVD of a Christopher Nolan movie. It's a bold assumption that I don't already own them all. Oh, that's true. And sorry, what's a, what's a DVD? <laughs> it's old technology. <laughs> it's kind of like a cassette tape. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. And last question, what is a paper, an epi methods paper that you also would, you know, read and reread, say on a, on a yearly basis or, 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 or that you go back to very often that you feel like you continue to get something out of? Hmm. Well, there are a number of those. I, I think I'd rather call out the paper that I think I should reread more often than I do, which is uh, Jeffrey Rose's Sick Individuals and Sick Population, mm -hmm. which I have read a number of times, but not frequently enough, because I think it's a paper that I could read every year and get something new out of. So now that I've called it out in public, hopefully I'll, I'll do a better job of rereading it every year. We're going to hold you to that. We will check back in with you next year and, and make sure you've gone through it. All right. I'll see you in a year. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being on the podcast. <laughs> hey, it's been a great show. Great to have you. <laughs> so... We wanted to talk with you about the counterfactual model. We thought that was, if we're, if we're thinking about causal inference, that seems like a really good place to start. And so can you start off simple and just sort of walk us through what the, the counterfactual model is all about or 
some people would call it the potential outcomes model or it goes by various other names. So just sort of, you know, talk about, you know, what this model is if you were sort of giving the, the big picture overview. Yeah. Okay. So I think the way I often explain this is in terms of, I like to think about a fellow named Frank who at 11 p.m. smokes a cigarette and at 11.10 p.m. has a heart attack. And we might be interested in whether for Frank, smoking that cigarette caused that heart attack. Was the cigarette that he smoked at a cause of the heart attack at 11, 10 p.m.? And the thing that I like to think about, listeners who are trying to get a better handle on counterfactuals might want to think about is, what do you really mean when you ask the question, did smoking the cigarette cause the heart attack? And if you really try and spell it out and try to be really explicit about, about what's behind that question, often you'll come up with something of the form, well, if Frank hadn't smoked that cigarette, would he have still had that heart attack? And if he would have had the heart attack, whether or not he smoked the cigarette, common sense usually leads you to the conclusion that the cigarette didn't cause the heart attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Either way, then the cigarette wasn't causal. But if there's some other world in which he doesn't smoke the cigarette and he, and then he doesn't have the heart attack, then you're probably going to conclude, all other things being equal, that the cigarette was causal. And so this is really the, the sort of central thing in the counterfactual model of causality, to think about some reality counter to the fact of what actually happened, in which some exposure or some treatment is different, and then to compare what would have happened, what happened in reality, that you actually observed, cigarette and heart attack, to what would have happened in that counterfactual. And the tricky part, of course, is that what counter to fact means is that you can't actually observe it. It's right there in the name. And so often when I'm teaching this, I will sort of point to fiction as one of the places where we get we get to think about counterfactuals most clearly. And so there are a number of movies where you get to see counterfactuals. Um, Sliding Doors is a really good example of this, where the main character either makes the subway or misses the subway, both of which can't be true at the same time. You're either making the subway or you're missing the subway. You're not doing both. And then you get to see all of the outcomes of having made the subway or missed the subway because it's a movie. And there are a number of movies like this. There's a movie that I never remember the name of that stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt in which he stands in the middle of, of a bridge in New York City and flips a coin. If it's heads, he runs to Manhattan, and if it's tails, he runs to Brooklyn. And you kind of get to see the, both of those outcomes play out. Mm-hmm. And so counterfactuals are a way of thinking about causal questions clearly. And they're closely related to potential outcomes, but I would differentiate those two things a little bit. You're, you're absolutely right, Matt, that people use those terms interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a little bit more clear to differentiate them which is that if you think about Joseph Gordon-Levitt, good old JGL, (laughs) flipping that coin, before he flips the coin, there are two potential outcomes, Mm -hmm. right? There are two ways that things could go, which is exactly what potential and outcome mean together. There's the heads outcome and there's the tail outcome, and neither of them is real yet. But also, because neither of them is real, neither of them is counterfactual, or Mm -hmm. they're both counterfactual. But once he flips the coin and it lands and it's a head, say, and he runs to Manhattan, and that might be wrong. I might have mixed that up from the <laughs> And then he runs to Manhattan. That outcome is real. That outcome becomes factual. And the other outcome in which the coin comes up tails is forever counterfactual. And so I would differentiate potential outcomes from counterfactuals in terms of the timing of when you want to use them. Before you've actually done an experiment, say a coin flip or a randomized trial, you have potential outcomes. And then after you've done so, typically one of your potential outcomes will be realized and factual. And the other potential outcome or potential outcomes, plural, if you have more than one exposure condition, are all going to be counterfactual. 
That's a fantastic explanation. I actually don't think I've ever heard it, whether it's Manhattan or Brooklyn or, or whatever. Um, you know, <laughs> that's the right example. It's a really clear explanation, so thank you. And, and I think when I hear you talk about that, it really hits home for me. Something that I think is important for all epidemiologists, all scientists to understand is that the comparison group is so critical. And really all of what we are doing as epidemiologists and researchers is comparing two or potentially more groups. And, and when you talk about the counterfactual or potential outcomes model, you really need to think through who am I comparing the group of interest to? Or if you're thinking potential outcomes, what are the potential outcomes that I am going to be comparing? And I think when you think about potential outcomes or, or counterfactuals in that way, it really highlights why the comparison group is so important to the research questions and, and effect estimates that we are estimating in our research. I think that's right, although causal effect estimation is not the only thing we do here. No, no, of course not, yeah. But I do think you're absolutely right that, in particular, we often don't pay enough attention to the comparison. Yeah. And this is one of the ways I think that observational research can listen a bit harder to randomized clinical trial type research. And one of the ways in which approaches like the target trial approach that a number of people have written about are, can be useful. And a lot of that work in turn is built on top of clear thinking, which is the result of, of thinking in terms of counterfactuals and potential outcomes. So this model is, seems to me is, is the central model for thinking about causation in epidemiology or in epi methods. It's not the, obviously not the only one, and we can talk about that at some point, but it, it is, I would say, the dominant way that we teach causation in epi methods training. And yet if I, if I sort of think it through, I don't know that the average person, when they are reasoning about cause and effect in their in things that happen in their daily lives thinks about the alternative we just think about do i think a caused b so why why is it so important then that we specify the alternative in epidemiology when we don't necessarily do that in our daily lives for trying to reason about cause and effect well in our daily lives we're, we're typically not trying to make mass health policy to improve the health of populations so if that's the thing you're doing it's very difficult to understand what it even means to make policy if you're not clear on what the alternative policies are and not extremely clear about what they are. I do want to clarify one of the premises of that question, if that's okay, mm -hmm. which is that you said that this is like probably the central way that we teach causation. I think those were your words. In I think that's what I said, yep. And I think that's right, but I also think it's really important to draw out the difference between causal inference causation and causal effect estimation. Sandra Greenland had a paper in European Journal of Epidemiology in 2017, the title of which is, is something like on methodologies, what's it called? For and against methodologies, I think mm -hmm. it's called, in which he makes this distinction. And that was really useful to me because previous to that, I had been referring to sort of the work I do as primarily about causal inference. And Sanders' paper really points out that the work I'm doing and the work that most people within epidemiology are doing that we call causal inference, a lot of it is really about causal effect estimation. Mm -hmm. Like what we're trying to do is estimate a causal effect of some exposure or treatment on some outcome in a particular setting. And that is a part of the broader project of causal inference, which is about a more which is, I think, a little bit more abstract, a little bit more philosophical, a little bit broader, but it's not the only part of causal inference. And that paper of Sandra Greenland's is very useful in pointing out where we can make causal statements without the key causal identification conditions being met, the things that the causal inference literature, the quote causal inference unquote literature talks about a lot, things like exchangeability and positivity and consistency, there are times when those conditions are violated, but you can still make causal statements. What would be an example of that? I don't want to misquote Sander. <laughs> but there are, the, you know, some of his examples of this are, if I'm remembering correctly, are around sort of physical phenomena. Mm -hmm. Like we, yep. can't, we can't intervene to dim the sun, but we right. can still be quite sure that the sun is causing things on the earth. <laughs> 
and and the, those exceptions are not always useful in terms of whether or not you want to do epidemiology and estimate causal effects and then use those causal effect estimates to try and help recommend policy decisions. But it is, I think, important to draw out that difference between causal effect estimation and causal inference more broadly. And I, I actually think that there is some, when thinking about the broader project of causal inference, there's actually some value to, for example, going back to the Hill criteria, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not a checklist. But the Hill lecture is really talking more broadly about causal inference and the sort of broader philosophical project of deciding whether something is causal or not, and not so much about causal effect estimation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think criticism, there are occasionally criticisms of the Hill paper that, oh, well, you can't express all of these in terms of potential outcomes, or you can't use these to estimate a causal effect very well in an observational study. But I think that is a bit of a category error. I think that misconstrues what Hill's project was, which was talking more broadly about the philosophy of understanding cause and effect, and a little bit less about the, the practical project of estimating causal effects within a selected data set. But I, what do you think about that? I think, I think that's a, a very helpful clarification because um, I, the Hill criteria, the Hill paper, it's often maligned. It's often sort of disregarded as, you know, this is not a causal checklist. This, you know, these are not criteria for causality. But when you frame it as thinking about causal inference broadly, these are important criteria to consider when you are thinking about causality. And so I think it's sort of a, a false accusation, a false slight against the Hill paper, because there are helpful concepts in there that are separate and apart from estimating a causal effect using different assumptions, you know, in, in your research. So I think that that's a, a very clear distinction. And I think it highlights the fact that reading the Hill paper is still very valuable to trainees, epidemiologists, anyone who is, you know, working in this field. I wanted to come back also to a question or a sort of implicit assumption in Matt's question to Daniel earlier, which is about how in our daily life, we don't think about coming the comparator and sort of we think about does A cause B. And when I think about that, I think about, you know, when you flip on a light switch, it turns on the light. Simple example of, you know, often used as an example of cause and effect. And when you are in your daily life, you turn on the light switch when you come into the room, and you might not be specifying or laying out that if I don't turn on this light switch, I'm not going to have light in the room. It is implicit in our thought process, right? And so I think that it's not necessarily true to say we don't think about the alternative. I just think we don't pre-specify it in the same way. We're not as explicit in the same way that we need to be in our research. You know, I also think about if you're standing on a sidewalk and you walk out into a busy street, you might get, you could get hit by a car, right? And so that is the cause and effect, stepping off the sidewalk, getting hit by a car. The alternative would be staying on the sidewalk and not getting hit by a car. And so those are, pro those are thought processes that certainly I would go through in my daily life if I'm walking down a busy street, but I don't lay out the alternative in the same way that we need to in our research. So I, I, I wonder what you thought about that, Matt. Well, okay, so this is where I get a little lost in this, Daniel. This is where I, I'm hoping you can shed some light. So uh, your point, Haley, it totally resonates with me, but when you talk about a situation like walking out into traffic. The implicit alternative that you said is there is I didn't walk out into traffic. But of course, there are an infinite number of things that I could have done in that situation. And yet I still ascribe my, whatever the negative consequences are of getting hit by the car to the fact that I walked out into traffic, regardless of any of the possible alternatives, right? My, my daily reasoning, I don't think about the fact that there could be so many other things I could have done other than just stand there, and some of which could have led to the same negative outcome. So I don't know that there is always a perfectly ascribed alternative when we ascribe causation in our daily lives. And maybe a model would be more helpful here, I don't know. 
But, you know, Matt, if you were walking down the street and you had a little kid with you, you would likely be holding on to their hand on a busy street for safety so they don't run out into traffic. Mm -hmm. I would certainly hold my four-year-old's hand as I walk down the street to, to make sure that they don't run out because the alternative is them running out into traffic. So I think in our daily lives, we do consider these alternatives, even if I'm not considering the infinite number of alternatives, I suppose he could run the other way and, and run away from me on the sidewalk or run into a field that's next to me. But we have to consider what is the most dangerous problem, and that would be running out into the street. So I, I do think our thought processes consider alternatives, maybe not the infinite number of alternatives, but more likely alternatives. I, that's just how I think about it. Daniel, does it matter? Does what matter? <laughs> yes, you should hold your child's hand on a busy street. <laughs> Thank you. Confirming my parenting. <laughs> okay, well it's it's too late for me. So I guess what I'm trying to trying to get at here is you laid out the basic tenets of this model. We know what did happen if we're we're talking about counterfactuals. We know what did happen and we want to compare it to some alternative that didn't happen but could have happened, and then we want to look at the difference. And you know, when I teach students this model, they often, it resonates with them into how to think about causation. But the next thing that happens, I find, is that then the students say, okay, but the reality is I live in the real world where this did happen and I don't know what would have happened in any other circumstances. So what's the practical implications of this? Why am I doing this if it's it provides me no practical tools? Well, I don't think it provides you no practical tools. I think it provides you a lot of practical tools. So in the real world, you did something, you smoked the cigarette and then you had a heart attack and you recover from that heart attack and you need to decide whether you're gonna smoke more cigarettes. So how are you gonna make that decision? One of the things you're gonna do is consider whether you think that that cigarette caused your heart attack. Mm -hmm. It's gonna influence that decision about how important it is to you to try and quit smoking, one assumes. you know. Sure, something happened, and looking backwards, it's maybe not so useful to be able to attribute cause and effect exactly, but if you liked what happened and you want it to happen again, or you didn't like what happened and you don't want it to happen again, it's worth considering what was the, the cause of that situation, mm -hmm. of that outcome, and whether doing something differently next time would have lead to a different result. I want to give you an example of it, actually a little bit from the medical literature, but I think it's illustrative of how articulating your counterfactual can be incredibly important to the decision you make, which is that we're in this moment of pandemic in which we have a real shortage of tests mm -hmm. and a sort of shortfall in testing capacity. And one possible solution for increasing our testing capacity is group testing or pooled testing where instead of testing 10 individuals, you might pool the nasopharyngeal swab samples of 10 individuals and test the pool. And then if that pool is positive, go back and test the 10 individuals. But most of the time, the pool of the 10 will be negative. And so you'll have saved 90% of your test costs. And then some of the time you'll have to go back and test the 10 individuals. So this approach can save a lot of tests, could theoretically increase testing capacity, it's a thing that's been done for years in other infectious diseases. People are already starting to talk about it. But the problem with it is that when you pool those 10 samples into a single sample, you reduce your sensitivity because you dilute the samples and you dilute the amount of virus in the samples. And so the chances that you miss a truly positive sample, those chances are gonna go up. And so you can ask the question, is this a strategy we should pursue? Right? Well, we're going to lose sensitivity. We're going to miss some, some truly positive people if we do this. And making that decision depends a lot, I think, on how you articulate the alternative. What is your counterfactual to doing this? And one possible counterfactual is test everybody individually. And obviously, this is inferior to testing everybody individually on, on the count of sensitivity because it's got a worse sensitivity than testing everybody individually with a molecular test like RT-PCR. But on the other hand, if we actually don't have enough tests, the real counterfactual here is not testing a lot of people. And if you and the sensitivity of not testing people is zero. And so even though the sensitivity of the pools is lower than 
individual testing. It's much higher than not testing at all. And so if you, if we truly are in a situation in which we simply don't have enough tests, then it seems to me like you make a better decision by considering that reality as the counterfactual, not the reality, not, not the sort of unreality of, well, but we should be testing everybody individually. Because at the present moment, I don't know how well this podcast is going to age in the mm. back, but <laughs> at the present moment in early June, we simply don't have enough tests. And I think things like that can be true in your personal life as well. Thinking carefully through, if you're trying to make a decision, thinking carefully through what the alternatives are, what the real counterfactuals are, can help you make clearer decisions and, for that matter, articulate the question at hand a lot better. And so this kind of loops back to my thoughts on what the coolest bias is, <laughs> which is that by specifying your counterfactuals clearly, by being really clear about what the potential outcomes are and under what exposures or treatments those potential outcomes exist, it helps you to ask better questions and to avoid asking the wrong question. In the case of pooled testing, I think that asking the question, is the sensitivity worse than individual testing, is not the right question right now. And I think thinking through the potential outcomes carefully of what, what would truly happen if we didn't do this pooled testing helps clarify that. And I, these none of these things are perfect. It's still entirely possible to make mistakes about what your question is when you're using potential outcomes or thinking about counterfactuals. But I do think that it can be really clarifying. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. When I've taught this, these concepts to students, related to what Matt's talking about, you know, is this even important? It's just a theoretical idea. I find students struggle most with, okay, I understand this concept. Now, how do I go out and find a counterfactual group or obviously a group to mimic as closely as possible the counterfactual? So can you talk a little bit about how researchers, students, can think through finding a group that is as close to the counterfactual as possible, assuming they have properly laid out the alternative they're looking for? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. I, I think the way I teach this and have laid it out in my book is that I introduce the ideas of causal inference and causal effect estimation broadly talk about the potential outcomes model and about counterfactuals, I talk about causal identification conditions and a number of other subjects and other causal models for that matter. I talk a little bit about the sufficient component cause model. I talk a little bit about the Hill criteria. And then the next thing that I teach and the next chapter in the book is about randomized trials. Because for the group that has been randomized, not necessarily for other groups, but for the study sample, Randomized trials are, in a lot of ways, the clearest way we have to find good substitute populations. Typically, when you are conducting a randomized trial, the contrast that you're interested in estimating is what if everyone were exposed to A versus what if everyone were exposed to B, where A might be an active treatment and B might be a placebo, or you might have an active comparison between two different drugs, say, or you might have an intervention. A might be some kind of an intervention and B might be not an intervention. But it's the what if everyone got A versus what if everyone got B. And of course, that's not factual, right? That's not factually true. In fact, in a typical trial, about half the people get A and about half the people get B. But because the people who get A and the people who get B is a coin flip, essentially, it's some kind of random process, on average, the people in A and the people in B, or the people who get A and get B, are very, very similar groups overall. And so the people who got A, well, they factually got A, but they can be assumed to be broadly having the same experience as the people in B would had counter to fact the people in B gotten A and vice versa. And that was a, it's a lot easier to do this when I have a whiteboard to tell you. Sure. So randomization really gives you these things and randomization and randomized trials generally also are a really nice way of illustrating and concretizing 
if that's a word, <laughs> causal identification condition that the causal inference literature talks about a lot. You know, and that the Hernan and Robbins textbook, for example, does a really nice job defining these ideas of consistency, exchangeability, and positivity being the sort of three key causal identification conditions. And there are others, and we can talk about that more on some other podcast if you want. But randomization gives you those causal identification conditions, typically either in expectation or by design. And we don't need to get into that deeply. It's laid out a little, it's laid out in, in the Hernan and Robbins textbook. It's laid out in my textbook. There are other places you can go to get that. But I think the way to think about this and the way to teach students about this is to learn the causal inference ideas, see how they emerge in randomized trials, and then see how things change when you move into observational research. And to understand then that once you're no longer flipping a coin to see who's in the, in the group A and who's in the group B, what changes and what assumptions need to be made in order to sort of establish counterfactual exposure groups and to make these clear comparisons. And I think that progression from abstract ideas to making them concrete with randomized trials to keeping them concrete but more complicated in observational studies is a really clear didactic pathway for helping students in particular to understand these ideas from the ground up. I don't know, I haven't proven it. I haven't done a randomized trial of different ways to teach this material. So I can't, I can't prove to you that it's causal of understanding. <laughs> but my anecdotal experience is that it's pretty helpful in helping people through these ideas. So I agree with you completely. I mean, I think that teaching the counterfactual model or potential outcomes model really puts the, the grounding or the understanding behind many of the things that we do in practice in epidemiology. So, you know, what is an observational data analysis or, or observational uh, research? Why are we doing regression analysis? What are we trying to do? Or why are we trying to control for confounding? Because we're trying to create subsets of the population in which the counterfactual holds. What is propensity score modeling really all about? You know, all of these different concepts, I think, build really nicely in terms of trying to understand what the goal is. I still don't think that means necessarily that it tells me. I understand students' frustrations with the, I can't see somebody's counterfactual outcome in reality. So it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a, a model why do I need to know it? But to me, the value is in being able to clearly articulate what we mean in terms of many of the of the concepts of bias and many of the strategies we take towards trying to eliminate bias in epidemiologic research. I suppose I probably hadn't thought of your point that it also helps you specify the question right nearly as much. But I think, you know, I think all of those are great points. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that. I, sort of to your point, Matt, you know, a randomized trial is going to, in some sense, work whether or not you specify the randomized trial in terms of the potential outcomes that it's identifying or helping you to try to identify. There's, a, there's some sense in which it, it's not strictly necessary to understand these things to do good work in epidemiology. But I also think that as soon as your analyses get more complicated, as soon as you're dealing with observational data with a lot of confounders in it, maybe time-varying confounding, thinking this way can be really, really clarifying in ways which prevent you from going down a lot of wrong pathways. And I also think that everybody who's getting a PhD in epidemiology should understand not just that the methods work, but how they work and why mm -hmm, they work. Mm -hmm. Both because I think that that is just sort of philosophically for me, that's just an important part of having the PhD. Like that's this, that's the PH in, <laughs> in the PhD at some <laughs> level. But also more broadly, because I sort of, I don't think of epidemiology as a, as a purely scientific field. I think of it as a hybrid science engineering field, where our job is not just to produce new knowledge and sort of discover new truths about the world but it's also to build better tools for discovering new truths about the world. Mm. And I, I deeply think that that is core to the discipline. I, I think within epidemiology, there tends to be a distinction made between the sort of applied folks and the methodologists. And I really would love to break that line down more because I think that everyone getting a PhD in epidemiology can be contributing to the methods literature and ideally should be contributing to the methods. You know, I don't want to tell people what they should do, 
But I, I try to encourage all of my students, everyone who comes to my first semester Epi Methods course to think about writing methods papers, even if they're just sort of explanations or more intuitive looks at methods which seem already solved. You, you know, people can contribute to the methods literature in a lot of different ways, and it doesn't necessarily take incredibly sophisticated statistical skills to do so. It's just as valuable, if not often more valuable, to just explain basic concepts very, very clearly and intuitively, because that kind of methods work often reaches a much wider audience than extremely technical methodological work. They're both really, really valuable, but I just want to sort of emphasize that you don't have to have the sort of master's in biostat along with your PhD in epidemiology to contribute to the methods literature. I could not agree more. I, I love methods. I, you know, I read a lot about methods and I am not a particularly statistical person. I really struggle when I'm looking at six pages of formula and, you know, trying to figure out what on earth is this saying to me and the papers that explain methods using words and applied examples just resonate so much more with me and I go back to them year after year, you know, talking about papers you read every year. I read Structural Approach to Selection Bias, you know, by Hernan and colleagues, probably several times per year. Probably I could tell you what page different examples are on <laughs> at this point because it's so clear in the way that it lays out the concepts. And there's very few, if any, formulas in that paper to explain the concept. So I, I totally agree with you that there is a huge need for methods type papers that don't include intensive formulas. Oh, I could. I, I, I also I want to jump in and say that, that I think that is so right. I think some of the best methods papers for me in terms of advancing my abilities and understanding have been ones that just explain the very complicated paper in a very simple way <laughs> that shows me, oh yeah, you know, this is actually something you can do. This isn't just something that is reserved for the, the elite statisticians who, who get it all. Not that we don't want to have a really good understanding of what we're doing, but the idea that this stuff is, is completely untouchable for anyone but those at the highest echelons is really something I think we need to break down. So I totally agree with that. I also want to say, related to your earlier point, Daniel, about being a hybrid with engineering, I think we're also a hybrid in some ways with philosophy, you know, and, and thought outside of the quantitative empirical world. I think this podcast in particular is really highlighting the importance of thinking through philosophical type of ideas, the counterfactual, even though you can't observe it. And that is also critical in, in addition to building tools so people can implement these. The questions you ask are, are really important. So it's sort of a Venn diagram, not just a hybrid with engineering, mm -hmm. but, but there's more components to it as well. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Daniel, which is you, you mentioned the key assumptions that I think this model leads us to in terms of causal inference and causal effect mm -hmm. estimation, which is exchangeability, positivity, and consistency. And I just want to, for the listeners, to make sure that we sort of give a sense for what those are. So when we talk about exchangeability, we're talking about does my unexposed group, or it doesn't have to be my unexposed group, but one way to think about it could be, does my unexposed group disease experience stand in for that counterfactual? Are they, what would have happened to the exposed group if they had been unexposed? We meet that condition essentially of no confounding. And positivity, meaning that there is a non-zero probability of getting the exposure within levels of the things that matter. So let me stop there and say, would you clarify anything on those two? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you've nailed 95% of it, the little tweaks I would make is that exchangeability usually is taken to include the broad understanding of exchangeability as lack of confounding, or mm -hmm. all of your confounding is controlled, which we sometimes call conditional exchangeability, is right. Often exchangeability is thought to include selection bias, mm -hmm. so no confounding and no selection bias, but you know, these categories are, are fuzzy. Positivity, yes, it's the thing, it's what you said, that there's a non-zero probability of exposure for everyone in your study, but also of non-exposure. People who are guaranteed exposed or guaranteed non-exposed are not people, and I guess guaranteed in air quotes there, those are not people who you would think about the causal effect of exposure or non-exposure in. It's, it's yep. sort of a not, not that sensible a question in those people. And uh, positivity is a little tricky in that you can loosen it up by using models. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that you have an observational study about the effect of aspirin on the risk of heart attack and, and no one under 
the age of 40 is taking daily aspirin to prevent heart attack. But if you have lots of people at ages 43, 42, 41, and 40 who are taking aspirin, you can probably make some statements about the people who are 39 years old, even though none of them are taking aspirin. Just by extrapolating your model just a little bit carefully, being real careful with your assumptions there. But yeah, no, I think I think you, you got it. So I find that when I teach this positivity, students can grasp that almost instantaneously. All by the time we get to thinking about these methods, really understand the ideas behind lack of confounding. So would they get that one? Consistency, I think, is where students, in my experience, struggle, and I, as an educator, struggle to really understand both in terms of exactly what it is, but also why is it necessary to be able to get a cause and effect? Yeah, and, and so here, this is another place where I think randomized trials and thinking in terms of the target trial approach to observational studies can be really helpful. But even before I say that, I think the first thing to observe about the consistency assumption is that the word consistency is very unhelpful mm. to students and people learning this, because it means at least three different things, one of which is this causal identification condition, one of which is a separate statistical condition, mm -hmm. which is not what the epidemiologists and the causal effect estimators mean by consistency. And the third is just the English language usage of consistency, mm. which may even show up in the Hill criteria. Yeah, it does. So it's just a mess of a term. And so I prefer causal consistency mm -hmm. phrase because it's, very, it's much more specific and it, it leaves a lot less room for that confusion. Or the other term that floats around is treatment variation irrelevance. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, a lot more useful in certain ways. It's certainly more descriptive. It's certainly more descriptive. And I think it points much more directly towards why we're worried about it. Daniel, is that also sattva, S-U-T-V-A, or is that slightly different? So sutva, which stable unit treatment assumption, if I'm remembering correct, I can never remember quite what each of those letters stands for, is usually taken to mean something similar to consistency, but also have some implications for the interference assumption or the no dependent happenings assumption. But then some causal inference folks think that the dependent happenings assumption is actually a type of causal consistency. So I'm not going to take a strong position. <laughs> I have no further comment at this time, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Canadian. I can't be a senator. Can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the other question you were answering about consistency. I think that the clearest way to think about and to understand consistency is to understand what it would mean for there to be a lack of consistency. And the classic example here is a body mass index or weight and comparing in an observational setting, people with a high weight to people with a low weight and looking at the risk of some outcome over time. And say for the sake of argument that the people with a high weight have a higher risk of this outcome over time, and you want to make some causal statement about the effect of the difference in weight. But you want to make that statement in such a way that it actually translates to action and recommendations. There are a lot of ways to get from a high weight to a low weight, and Common sense tells you that different ways of getting from a high weight to a low weight can have radically different implications for your health. And so if you get from a high weight to a low weight by eating less, like caloric restriction, just going on a diet, but not really changing anything else about your life, that's one case. But then there's the case where you eat less and exercise more, get a lot more cardio, which is a different way of losing weight. And then there's the way where you start smoking in order to cut your appetite. And that's the thing that helps you eat less, which has radically different implications for your health. And then there's the place where you get gastric bypass surgery, which is, I don't know whether it's better or worse for you overall in terms of health outcomes, but it's certainly not guaranteed to be the same as all of those others that I just listed. And if you're in an observational setting and the thing you do is just compare people with a high weight to a low weight and try and make causal statements about the impact of weight loss, you're sort of summarizing all of over some weird combination of all of those examples that I just listed. And it's very hard to then translate any of that into a useful policy recommendation. And that becomes a lot more clear if you imagine 
a randomized trial where you enrolled people with a high weight or a high body mass index to lose weight in various ways. And then you follow them up to see who did lose weight. And then you were to see what the implications of that were for health. And I guess I, I do want to pause and say that like research on obesity is really, really complicated and it's not specifically what I do. So I may be making some mistakes here. And also this example may be inadvertently a little bit shaming of fat and obesity in a way that I probably need to think about more before using it any further because shame associated with the stigmatizing of body weight is really harmful in mental health terms. I just sort of want to make that caveat. That said, this is a really classic example of obesity, and I think it's useful for teaching, but maybe we need yeah. to, all of us as a field, think about better examples that avoid some of the stigmatizing of obesity. So my apologies, and I'm going to try and do better in the future. That said, if you imagine a randomized trial, you could specify how you were going to suggest people lose weight, and then you could see how effective it was, and it would be very, very clear what you were recommending people do and not do, and then you could make policy recommendations based on the things that people actually did. And so in that randomized trial, if you assigned, when you assigned people to lose weight, if you assigned everybody to the same diet and exercise regimen, you would by design have assigned them all to the same thing in the same moment. And you would have causal consistency of that treatment assignment. Whereas in that observational study, it's just, a, it's a total incoherent mess as to what you're implying about what mechanisms people are going to use to move from one weight to another weight at a given time. So I think that's a fairly clear way of helping people understand what consistency is. I think the other way maybe that you can help them underst uh, help people understand what consistency is, is to think about dichotomization of variables. So if you think about blood pressure, which is a continuous measure in both systolic and diastolic that goes over a huge range, in humans. And you can dichotomize blood pressure into hypertensive and non-hypertensive if you want to. But when you dichotomize into hypertensive and non-hypertensive, especially on the hypertensive side of that dichotomization, you're lumping in a lot of people together. You're lumping in the people who have BP of 140 over 100 with people who have a BP of 190 over 140. I don't know if that's a real blood pressure, but anyway, there's a big range within hypertension. And when you dichotomize, you're treating all of that range as a single thing. And when you do that, you're losing information. Now, it might be fine information to lose, depending on what your question is. If your question is really about some potential intervention that's triggered when someone is above a particular line, no matter where they are above that line, if we have a treat at this definition is met intervention that we're trying to explore the causal effects of mm -hmm. be a reasonable dichotomization to make. But I think it's illustrative to see how wide a range of exposures there is inside that hypertension dichotomization. And it's really worth thinking through, is that a useful thing to do? Is that mm -hmm. dichotomization useful? And is that a thing we really want to be doing in our research? I think so. I think that's truly helpful. And I think that I find anyway that this is the hardest one for people to wrap their minds around. So I, I think that was a great way to, to summarize it and to help understand it. So we're running up against time. But before we go, the one thing I do, do want to ask you is for anyone who wants to learn more about the potential outcomes model or the, the causal inference methods that come out of this model, where would you send people, including and probably especially your own work? <laughs> for the opportunity to uh, talk about my own work. So the two sort of foundational papers on potential outcomes are Jersey Nayman's or Nyman's, N-E-Y-M-A-N's paper from 1923, which you can find in translation all over the place, almost certainly for free. And then Don Rubin's paper from the 70s, which sort of resurrected Nayman's potential outcomes model and sort of popularized it. So those two are probably worth reading at least once. The Hernan and Robbins textbook, which is as of this taping still free online, I believe, is a very useful introduction to a bunch of these ideas with a lot of really thoughtful, well-written, concrete examples. My own textbook also introduces a bunch of these ideas and unfortunately is not free. But it's available on Amazon and comes in one day. <laughs> And then I do have one other paper that I think people might be interested in reading if they're interested in going a little bit deeper. I think one 
really key thing that I didn't mention earlier, but that's a sort of core point in thinking about causal inference and potential outcomes is this idea of how missing data relates to causal inference, which is that if we go back way back an hour ago to the very early moments of this podcast, we can observe typically in a, in a randomized trial or, or in reality, you know, in reality, generally, we can observe what's factual and we can't observe what's counterfactual. And so we get to observe, you know, one potential outcome becomes a real outcome and the other potential outcome is forever unobserved and counterfactual. And so another way of thinking about that is that that potential outcome that we don't observe is a kind of missing data. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jess Edwards has a really nice paper, the title is something like all of your data are always missing. It's a really good one. Yeah. This is why it is sometimes said that the fundamental problem of causal inference is a problem of missing data. And so I have a paper with some colleagues, which from I think 2015, which is titled Imputation Approaches for Potential Outcomes in Causal Inference, with the idea being that, you know, we teach students missing data techniques. And if you take it, if you take the idea seriously and literally that the fundamental problem of causal inference is one of missing data, then you should be able to apply all of those missing data techniques specifically to the problem of, for example, multiple imputation of potential outcomes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If it's missing data, then you should be able to do that. And in fact, you can do that. And we do do that in this paper. And so what this paper is useful in doing, I think, is both showing that that's true, which I think helps people really fix it in their mind that the problem of causal inference really is a missing data problem. And it also helps tie together assumptions like there's no uncontrolled confounding to assumptions about missing data that we're comfortable making in other, in other situations, like missing at random versus missing completely at random, mm -hmm. versus not at random. Like mm -hmm. some tying together of the assumptions around confounding to those other language around the missing data assumptions. That's definitely not the first paper you should read, <laughs> but I do think it's useful in exploring a couple of the ideas a little bit more deeply. Fantastic. And you, so you mentioned the text by Hernan Robbins. It's called Causal Inference, What If? And it is available on their website for free as of the time of this taping. I would certainly recommend that. Well, Daniel, thanks so much. This has been a, a, an incredibly enlightening conversation. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Thank you so much for joining us. So for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, we strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in December of this year in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some of the great learning material seminars and activities that SER has. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epiresearch.org. We appreciate you listening and look out for our next episode next month.